0: Following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10:30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Maybe you are like me and you've wondered when the the trend started where a a brand, the logo, a clothing label, went from being on the inside of clothes to the outside of clothes. That's not always been the trend for for decades, maybe centuries of clothing manufacturer will make clothes. a clothing company, fashion company, will make clothes, and they will put the label on the inside. It's their garment. But at some point, that started to be displayed. On the outside, in fact, today you could go to high-end, in some high-end fashion, and you could find a t-shirt, a regular t-shirt that's pretty much like every other t-shirt except it has the the name or the logo on front, and now that t-shirt, especially for some of the higher-end brands, can cost well over $100 just for that t-shirt because of the wording on the front. So when did that trend happen? There's actually an interesting story behind one of the very first clothing companies that did this, that marked their clothes on the outside, put an insignia or a brand on the outside. And the story is in association with the French tennis star from the 1920s named René Lacoste. Now here's how the, the story went. René Lacoste was one of the greatest tennis players in the world at the time. In fact, for a couple of years, he was the greatest tennis tennis player in the world. He played um, uh, in the... F- and won several Grand Slam tournaments. He played on the French team, of course, for the Davis Cup. And it was in one of those Davis Cup competitions that while he was traveling, he looked inside the store window and he saw this bag, this suitcase, that he that he really wanted, and it was made out of alligator skin. And so he saw this bag and he decided to have a side wager with one of the other players on the French team that that they were going to bet this alligator skin bag depending on the outcome of the tournament. Now the press got wind of this side wager. They loved this side story as they're covering this tournament and they started talking about it and then it started to expand and the press started calling Rene Lacoste the crocodile. And that became his nickname, and it started to expand and expand, and they said, well, he's like the crocodile because he studies his opponent, and once he has them in his grip, once he's clamped down on them, he'll never let them go. And so they started calling him the crocodile, and that nickname started spreading, and René Lacoste liked it. He liked it so much, he so much liked that he was identified with this crocodile, that he was being associated with the crocodile, that he went to a clothing company and asked them to embroider an alligator on his clothing. And they embroidered it on a blazer. Like, look, look at this picture from the 1920s. So there is Lacoste with the alligator emblazoned on his blazer. Well, as he started playing tennis, they started more and more associating the crocodile with this guy. He liked this term. But in, that, in those days, they would play tennis in a button-down, long sleeve shirt, pants, and a tie. And I don't know if you could envision hustling across the tennis court in a shirt and tie, but Mr. Lacoste didn't like that, and he saw one day... Someone playing tennis in what polo players wore in England, these long sleeve wool or cotton shirts with a small collar and buttons. And he decided, you know, what if we took that shirt and altered it a little bit? What if we had a short sleeve version of that? And the tail of the shirt was a little longer, so when I'm lunging for a shot, my shirt can stay tucked in, and it's got a collar that I can put up if I want to protect myself from the sun. And so he wore this short-sleeved shirt that we now call the polo shirt, and he wore that as one of the first shirts that ever looked like that. And of course, he had emb- uh, embroidered on the shirt his alligator well as his tennis career starts winding down, he gets into a partnership with a clothing manufacturer and this Lacoste shirt with the alligator goes all over the world and is still alive to this day and one is one of the first polo shirts that was that we call polo shirt in existence. Now there's something really interesting about that story because what's happening with René Lacoste personally is part of what starts a trend. They're one of the first clothing companies to put their label on the outside. And so what's happening to Lacoste personally is an interesting parallel with what happens to the fashion industry, which gets more and more speed. And then after World War II, the idea of putting the label on the outside, the brand on the outside, mushrooms throughout the entire fashion industry. But what's happening is Lacoste likes this identity of the crocodile, And he wants to display it. He wants to perpetuate it. He wants to cement it in people's mind. He has an identity that he's wanting to display externally to the point that he's getting it embroidered on his clothing. That starts a trend in the fashion industry or helps start a trend in the fashion industry where it's not just that their clothes are made nicely. They're trying to express whose garment it is because it's externally expressing the value of the garment. That's why you can have shirts today that are very, very expensive just because of the brand on the outside. What's happening externally is communicating value internally. This is also an interesting parallel to how identity, this issue of identity, works in every single one of us. Doesn't matter your season of life, your experience. Your circumstances, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter where you're at, every single one of us deals with this deep down issue of our identity. Who are we? Who are we? And then we, what we're dealing with internally, we try to externally communicate our value. By the way, what we do, the way we present ourselves, the way we talk, we're trying to express our value internally. We're dealing with this idea of identity, and way down deep, as we're peeling back these layers of identity, down deep, it comes down to one core question that every single one of us has to address. One core question. The interesting thing about this core question is it's not at all what we'd expect it to be. We're looking at a story in um, the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. It's a story about a guy named Naaman, and he's on this journey dealing with his identity, and he comes face-to-face, With this core question, and we're going to take a look at this guy's journey because there's a lot that we can learn. Now we're in part three uh, today, we're talking through this, so we're going to give a a little bit of a review, but you can always go online on uh, the podcast or on our website and catch up on parts one and two, I encourage you to do that um, as we continue with this series. But we're going to look at 2 Kings, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to 2 Kings chapter five, we're going to look here at verse one. Here's what it says. Naaman, now it's going to describe who Naaman is. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Here's the basic conflict intention in the story of Naaman. He's a commander. He's the commander of Syria. Syria, right, at this point in history, when Naaman was around, they were enemies with Israel. Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. That means he has extraordinary power. It means he has extraordinary fame. He has extraordinary wealth, as we learn. He's got everything going for him that this world can offer him. But he's got leprosy. Leprosy was one of the most... Uh, terrifying diseases of the day. It was a disease that rotted your skin from the outside in. It it would would spread over your body and it it could be fatal and the skin disease uh, was incurable. They didn't have a cure for it and so it was terrifying. Naaman had everything the world had to offer. He was a commander of the the army but he had leprosy and it turns out he was absolutely desperate to get rid of this leprosy. He wanted healing at all costs to the point that how the story plays out is there's this little servant girl in his household. And she says, Naaman, she says, tell Naaman that there is a prophet in Israel. Remember, the, their enemies she says there's a prophet in Israel that can heal him of his leprosy. Naaman's so desperate that he goes to his boss, the king of Syria, he goes to his boss and says, look, I want to go to Israel to, to find out because I can apparently get healed of my leprosy. The king of Syria says, okay, writes him a letter of recommendation. The king of Syria writes it to the king of Israel and says, take this letter with you. So Naaman goes and he takes the letter. but That's not the only thing he took with him, is it? If you remember the last couple weeks, he takes the letter, but he also takes a whole lot of money. He takes all this wealth. He takes, a scholars estimate, something like $750 million he travels with. Remember, that's not in his checkbook. That's by the chariot load behind him. He's traveling with this money, something like $750 million. He has this extraordinary wardrobe, so he's always dressed like a king. He's got the letter, he's got the wealth, he's got the clothes, and he also takes with him all these horses and chariots. He's got a display of military power with him. He goes, takes all of that to Israel. What is he doing? He's saying, there is no way I am coming back from Israel without my healing. I will get it one way or another. If I can't intimidate you into giving it to me or coerce you with this letter, then I'm going to buy it with my money. There is no price that you can say, I'm going to write a blank check. You fill in the price because I will purchase my healing. He says, if not that, then I will entice you and draw you in by my dazzling, glorious display in these kingly robes. And if that won't get you, then I will threaten you with this army that I have that I'm bringing with me. He is willing to do whatever it takes. He is going to make it happen. He travels to Israel. He walks into the king of Israel's palace, and he hands the king of Israel the letter from the king of Syria. And here's what happens. I want you to jump down to verse 7. As you're going there, here's what you need to know about this verse. This passage is really interesting the way it's laid out. Because this verse, verse 7, is fixed right in the middle of the story. And there's these indicators in the text, and I wish we had time to go through all of this and and show how all this plays out, but there's these indicators in the story, in the text, that this center verse is the centerpiece to the entire story. It's like the crescendo. This verse, verse 7, is like the key that helps us unlock the meaning of the entire story, okay? So this is verse seven. This is what happens. Look at this. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. This king of Israel, he says, what am I supposed to do with this? He unrolls this letter from his enemy, the king of Syria, and he says, heal my servant of his leprosy, please. Signed, king of Syria. Rolls up the letter. How could I possibly do this? There's no cure for this disease. How in the world? He's just trying to start a fight with me. There's no way I can do this. And he says this phrase. It's really interesting. He says, am I God? God? Can I kill and make alive? Do I have anything to do with life or death? How could I possibly heal a man of leprosy? I am not God. Now take that response and just put that on the shelf for a few minutes, okay? Elisha hears that the king of Israel tears his clothes. Elisha is the prophet that Naaman was told about. The king of Israel tears his clothes. It's an ancient symbol of just disgust, desperation, grief. He tears his clothes. And Elisha says, just send him to me. So Naaman goes. And he goes, he takes his letter, he takes all his money, he takes all his clothes, he takes all his horses and chariots, he rolls into Elisha's neighborhood. And here's what happens. Look at this. Jump down to verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, now I want you to watch this wording closely, go and wash in the Jordan, seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Okay, he says, go and you will be clean. Remember that. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. Did you notice that Elisha sends a messenger to him? Naaman shows up, he's got these fancy clothes, all this money, he's got uh, this letter, he's got all his armies, and Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. He sends a messenger to him. In other words, none of that even matters. That won't get Naaman anywhere. And the messenger says, Elisha told me to tell you, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and that'll heal you. Now, Naaman is furious. He's furious because none of his stuff that he brought... His wealth, his power, none of that will get him anywhere. It, it's, it's not gotten him any closer to his healing. And he's offended by that. He's offended that Elisha has blown him off. He's not even come out to, to see him. And there's a third thing he's offended at. He's offended that he has to wash in the Jordan River in particular. If you know anything about the, that part of the world, and specifically the Jordan River itself, it is not the type of river you want to wash in. In Damascus, where Naaman is from, he goes on to say he'll rant and rave. There's all these nice rivers there. Why can't I wash in one of those? I have to wash in the Jordan. The Jordan is not a crystal clear river. It's dirty, in fact, it's opaque. It's like greenish brown. You can't see through it, okay? It's dirty, it's not the place where you would think you'd get clean. On top of that, it's freezing cold. Not a place that you want to wash in now. Because we here at West Pines care about you, we have put together a little video. A couple weeks ago, we a couple months ago, we had a team that went over to Israel on a study tour, and while we were there, we were at the part of the, happened to be at the part of the Jordan near where Naaman would have washed, and we said to ourselves you know what? Our West Pines family back at home, they should see a demonstration of what it looks like to wash in the actual freezing cold Jordan River seven times. So we prepared a video. Would you like to see a video of what that looks like? Uh, Okay. All right. Check out this video. So we are here at the Jordan River and this is about the spot where Naaman probably washed himself seven times. And we just wanted you to get the experience of what that would be like to wash in the Jordan seven times. I personally am not gonna go in because I need to narrate this. So we've asked Pastor Justin here to go wash in the Jordan seven times. So Justin, please demonstrate what would it have been like for Naaman to wash in the Jordan. Such such, such an honor. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Justin, you're uh, Okay, <laughs> okay. So, so. Here we are, here we are in the Jordan. Go down, down, here we go. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm clean. <laughs> he deserves a round of applause. I mean, as a true humble servant, Justin, we appreciate you wherever you are. Um, So he had to go down into the freezing Jordan River. You saw the color. They don't have to notice the color of the Jordan River there. It is not where you ideally envision going and getting clean on your way out. But this is what he is told to do by Elisha. Now, remember, yeah, that doesn't sound pleasant, but he has leprosy. And so his servants say to Naaman, they say, just try it. Just try it. And so Naaman goes down into the water, washes seven times, and he's clean. He's cured of his leprosy. Now let's wrap up how this story goes. Jump down to verse 15. This is what happens. And let's look at this carefully. Then he returned, this is Naaman, he returned to the man of God. Interesting title for Elisha. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, This is Elisha. As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman goes, uh, Elisha says, go and you'll be cleansed. Naaman goes, he gets cleansed, and then he returns. Now remember, before Elisha had communicated that from a distance, through a messenger, now he is standing right before Elisha. And and what is on his mind? Now, the interesting thing is I say he's staying before Elisha, but did you notice he's called the man of God? That's the title that's given to him. It's almost like it's saying the instrument of God. Now, here's an interesting interesting part of the story. After the first encounter of Naaman and Elisha, for the rest of the story, Elisha's name is never mentioned. He's only referred to as the man of God, like the instrument of God. He comes and he stands before the man of God. Now he's standing before him, and what's on his mind? What does he say? Man, Elisha, you are, you're good, man. What a miracle. That is incredible, okay? I, I can't believe this. Does he say all that? No, he's got one thing on his mind. He says, now I know there is a God, one God in the entire world, and it's the God of Israel. What's on his mind is God himself. He stands before him, and now he wants to give him something. He says, "Let may I give you a gift? Now, okay, you're Elisha. You look over Naaman's shoulder, and you see a whole line of horses carrying treasure chests filled of $750 million thereabouts. What's your response going to be? Well, I mean, a couple million. That's like pocket change for Naaman. I mean... Naaman, we could do a lot of good around here with a couple million dollars. I mean, that that wouldn't hurt over here, you know, and and I I could do with that. I mean, what's the harm in asking for that? What does Elisha say? As the Lord lives, I will receive none of it. Naaman pushes him and urges him, okay, and still Elisha refuses. So it's not like Elisha's like, nah, you know, I I can't take any. No, really, Elisha, should. Okay, if you insist, if you twist my arm, then I'll take some. No, that's not it. He refuses to take it. Why? He says, as the Lord lives, I will not take it. What's happening with all of this? It goes back to this key verse. It's a hinge verse. It's, it's a centerpiece verse to this whole story in verse 7. The king of Israel is told to heal the man, and the king says this. Am I God? What's he saying? Only God can heal lepers. Naaman goes to Elisha. Elisha says, go and you'll be cleansed. He goes and gets cleansed, returns to the man of God and wants to give returns and what's on his mind. Not Elisha, but God. God obviously, he gets it. God healed me. There's one God. He wants to give a gift. What does Elisha say? No, I'll have none of it because since only God can do this, I'm not gonna accept the credit and the glory, Elisha says. I will not receive it. This passage is accentuating emphatically this truth. Only God could do it. Only God has the power to do it, so only God should get the glory. To the point, it goes to the extent, weaving that theme through this passage, that after the initial encounter of Naaman and Elisha, Naaman's name, I mean, um, Elisha's name is no longer mentioned through the passage. It's just the man of God. Why? Because Elisha is fading to the background. God, it's God who has the power and God who gets the glory. Two things. Only God can heal a leper, so only God should get the credit for healing a leper. In other words, only God has full control and only God deserves all the glory. Now there's two th- interesting things happening here. that. It, is happening in the story and happening in Naaman's journey. And it ties down to our identity. Because those two things, control and glory, are two of the greatest struggles that every single one of us wrestle with. Some of us um, on that spectrum, you know, we, we all struggle with both, but some of us struggle a little bit more with control and some of us struggle a little bit more with Glory. Some of us want control, okay? We have our agenda, we have our calendar, we have our list, we have our to-do list, we have our way of things that we want it to be done. And if you change anything on that list, my life falls apart, okay? I'm in a fetal position somewhere, okay? We have control. Now, before you elbow your spouse, okay? We're talking about more than just not giving over control of the television remote, okay? Because this is, this infects all of our life. We have the circumstances in our life that we, we have our plan, we have our map, we have exactly how our life is supposed to play out. We have our control and our life, if that's our bent, our life is built around wanting that control. We want higher positions of authority. We want more responsibility that gives us more control. But on the flip side, some of us, it's less control and more glory, what we're after is approval, acceptance, recognition, praise, attention. For us, it's, it's looking for glory. It, it just eats us alive if someone else gets credit and recognition for something that we also deserve credit and recognition for. If we don't get credit and recognition for something, that eats away at us. When it comes to glory, we all want glory. It takes a high level of restraint if you're in a social circle and someone's telling a story and you have a story that would absolutely one-up that story but you decide to have the restraint and let them have their moment and not share your story. That takes restraint that few people have the ability to do. See, there's these two things that we crave and seek after and a lot of times build build our lives in order to get control and or glory. Okay, a quick diagnostic here that will help you know um, which side you tilt towards. And it all comes down to this whether you are a spender or a saver. I know I'm about to start a fight in every marriage at West Pines, okay? But I'm risking that, okay? Whether you are a spender or a saver. If you are a saver, that's not a bad thing, but it could be driven by an unhealthy need to control. Because if you've saved enough, if you've hoarded enough, if you've kept enough, then you have enough margin, you have uh, enough Enough so that nothing can happen to where you're out of control. You are safe and secure. On the other hand, if your tendency is to spend, a lot of times that's driven by the desire for glory, for attention, for recognition, for praise, for how you present yourself to get credit and praise for that. See, we all have this tendency for control, and we all have this tendency for glory. And what's interesting is this passage has said something pretty emphatically. Only God has control. So only God deserves glory. So why do we seek those things? It comes down to one core question, identity. If we're digging all the way to the core, there's one core question and it's pretty surprising that this is the question. But it's in verse 7. The issue behind identity is this one question that we all have to ask ourselves. Am I God? And I say, okay, well, I mean, that's kind of a dumb question. I know I'm not God. I mean, I did get all green lights on the way to church today, so maybe I did something I didn't realize. Okay. Am I God? God? That's kind of unexpected. Why is that the core question? Of course I'm not God. Of course we know that we're not God. But if we know we're not God, then why do we have this constant impulse to seek out the things that only God has and deserves? So let's settle it once and for all. Let's ask ourselves that one foundation question about our identity. Who are we? Let's start with this. Am I God? No, then all control of my life belongs to God and all glory needs to be sent to God. In other words, my life then is not, should, could, should not be built on trying to get control for myself It should be built on surrendering control to God. It should not be built on proving my glory, displaying my glory. It should be built on displaying glory for him. In other words, if I am not God, then my life, my world, and the universe does not revolve around me. If I am not God and he is God, then the universe, my world, and my life revolve around him. I wake up every day saying, God, I give you control and I give you glory. Fundamental question, am I God? Now, here's what's interesting. You know, this Old Testament story here in 2 Kings, you know, this is all just a setup. This is really kind of like part one, there's a part two to this whole story that happens 850 years later, and this is all like an alley toss to a story that happens 850 years later. This story is saying there is only one who can heal lepers. It's God, and there's only one that gets the glory for healed lepers, and it's God. And that's all one giant setup for what happens 850 years later. Let me read it to you. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to hear this. Luke chapter 17 Starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. And lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, Jesus, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praised God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to who? Give praise to God, accept this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let me recap and tell me if this story reminds you of another story. There's a leper, actually not just one, ten lepers this time. And everything in them are desiring healing. And so they ask of this man from a distance. They don't come up close. From a distance, they ask for healing. And what does he say? He says, go to the priest and you will be cleansed. Same exact two words you see in the story of Naaman and Elisha are the words that are used here in Luke. Go and, they, and as they went, they are cleansed. And what happens? One not just goes and finds out he's cleansed, he comes back. And he comes, and does he stand before Jesus? He's on his face before Jesus, and he wants to give him something. He wants to give him his praise. And on his way back, he's praising God and then wants to give Jesus his praise. Now, there's a couple things that diverge between the story of Jesus and the lepers and Elisha and the leper. Interestingly, the leper that comes back to Jesus is a foreigner, just like the leper that comes to Elisha. But one difference is Jesus heals 10 times the number of lepers that Elisha does. And here's the other thing. And this is the most significant part. When the Samaritan leper comes before Jesus, he doesn't stand before him. He's on his face at Jesus' feet, and he wants to give him praise. What Elisha did is like, no, no. It doesn't come to me. But what Jesus did was different. Did you notice what Jesus said? The man is giving him praise at his feet. You know what Jesus says? Weren't there 10? Why is there just one doing the right thing? Actually, what he says is, did only one come back to give thanks to God? What did Naaman and Elisha set up for us? What did it lob up there for us? Only God heals lepers. And when this man comes to Jesus, he says, You leper are healed, and you have come back to give praise to God. Do you see what Jesus is not just displaying? He's saying about himself. He is God in the flesh because he has the power to heal a leper, he deserves all the glory for healing a leper. Can we ask ourselves a tough question? Can we all look inside and say, am I God? If I am, then I can build my, le- my world on pursuing my own glory and my own control. But if I am not God, glory and control, and then the, the glory that's deserved for that control belongs only to God, specifically Jesus Christ who walked among us. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound like Jesus is kind of a control freak and a glory hog? Like, why is Jesus walking along saying, I'm the one who has the control and I'm the one that deserves the glory? Why, why does that make sense? But do you realize what Jesus came down to earth to do? He came down to earth to surrender all his control. He was nailed to a cross, and in fact, while he was allowing his arms to be nailed to a cross, to be crucified, to pay for our sins, they looked up and mocked him and said, if you were really the Son of God, you would have the power to come off of that cross. Clearly, they're saying, you don't control your circumstances, do you, Jesus? And Jesus could in that moment say, let me display who I am. Let me show you my identity. Let me show you how much control I have. But he stayed hanging on this cross, why? Out of his love for us. He's the most glorious one in all the universe, but he came down to earth and they humiliated him, stripping him of his dignity, spitting on him and mocking him and putting him, posting him up on a cross for all to see. The one who had all control surrendered his control for you. And the one who had all the glory surrendered his glory for you. The one who, the one being, who shouldn't surrender control and glory, did. And now, even more reason we spend our lives surrendering control and glory for him. You know why it's exhausting to spend our lives trying to get control and keep control? You know why it's exhausting while it's trying to make sure you get credit and praise and all the recognition do you? and it's exhausting to try and get all the glory? Because this universe is not built like that it's built for only one person, one being to get glory and to have control of God, and you and I are not it. that's why it's so exhausting in this book um, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, it's kind of our companion to the series. You can pick one of these up in the back lobby in the the resource center. But in this book, um, this pastor, Tim Keller, he he quotes an interesting interview in Vogue magazine. They were interviewing Madonna. And in this interview, she has this unbelievable moment of self-awareness. It's actually actually impressive, her level of self-awareness. And he quotes this in this book, and I wanted to read you this quote from this Vogue article. This is Madonna. She says, "'My ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it. The cupboard is bare. I keep putting all sorts of things into it every morning, feeding it, and the next night it is bare. I have become somebody, but I still need to become somebody.'" That's really unbelievably insightful. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, I could see why Madonna would say that, but Tim Keller goes on to say very poignantly, that is every one of our stories. We're constantly trying to, be, to become somebody and stay somebody. We're constantly trying to gain control and keep control. We're constantly trying to gain glory and keep glory. And it's exhausting because the only way it's actually designed to function is to give all control and glory to God. I think there's maybe someone here, you're going through a circumstance right now and you've just lost all control. And right now you are struggling, you are exhausted, you're stressed, you're fearful, and you're angry as if something unnatural has just happened to you. But can I encourage you in this season, a season of acceptance where you say, I need to accept that you are and always have been and always will be in control. So it doesn't matter whether I feel like I'm in control right now. I can have acceptance for this season because you are in control and that's the way it's supposed to be. You're maybe, there's someone here in a season where you're in a very inglorious season. You're, it's your pride is taking a hit. Your ego is taking a hit and you're frustrated and you're angry because you're like, this is not the way it should be. But maybe in this season, you can have some acceptance saying, you know what, God, you deserve all the glory. So even in this hardship, I am going to use this as an opportunity to continue giving you the glory you deserve because my life does not circle around me. It circles around you. Maybe you can have acceptance in this season. Maybe it's an obedience issue. Maybe there's something that you know in your heart and the Holy Spirit's turning in your heart right now. You understand there's a step of obedience that you need to take, but it's gonna mean either you're gonna have to surrender glory, you're gonna have to do something you don't wanna do, you don't feel like doing, you wish you didn't have to do, or surrender control. And in this moment, God's saying, it's time to take that step of obedience. Why? Because this life is not about you maintaining control or glory. It's about surrendering that to me. And that's where you'll find the healing you're looking for. You might be here today and you might be saying, look, um, I am exhausted and I need to surrender. We're going to take this time now and just give you an opportunity to just surrender before God. But maybe for the first time, you need to surrender before Jesus and realize all that Jesus has done for you. Wow, God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, you died on the cross for me and you rose again on the third day and you paid. For all my sin, all the things that separate me from you, all my past, all my mistakes, you've paid for that. Thank you for what you've done, making a way for me to be in heaven for eternity. And maybe you just need to accept that and say, okay, so I surrender my life to you today. And if that's you, I wanna lead you. You can begin that journey. You can take that step. You can surrender and you can start that with a prayer. And I, can, I wanna lead you in that prayer right now. If everyone would just take a moment before the Lord, would you just bow your heads? just take a quiet minute before the Lord. Maybe you say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but maybe there's a way he's calling you to surrender today. And you just need to draw a line in the sand and either just say, okay, I will be obedient and do that. Or I will, I will just stop fighting it and accept what you're doing in my life. But some of you say, I need to put my faith in Jesus. I want to be saved today. I want to surrender to him. And if that's you, then I want to lead you in a simple prayer right there in your seats. You can surrender your life to Jesus and you can have self. You can be saved. No for a fact that you will spend eternity in heaven with God. You can just surrender to Jesus right now. If that's you right there in your seat, quietly in your heart, say these words to God. Say, God, I surrender surrender control. I surrender the glory, all because I know you deserve it. But more than that, Jesus died on the cross, and I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve what he did for me. Thank you for how much you love me. I surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.